Forgiveness is hard. It really is. And that's why Paul wrote this letter of Philemon. Think about this. If forgiveness was really, really easy, he wouldn't have needed to write this. If you could just assume that every, even Christian, would automatically forgive, that was an easy thing, then Paul would not have had to write this letter that he is writing to Philemon to persuade him, to implore him to offer forgiveness and reconciliation to, to Onesimus. But Paul wrote this letter, and he used godly persuasion uh, to do this, to speak into the life of this guy Philemon, to help him to do what he needed to do and what was the right thing to do because it doesn't come automatically, because forgiveness is hard. It is really hard. And maybe there's people in your life that that you need to forgive, that you need to uh, release from uh, these, these feelings of being against them, and I will tell you that it, I recognize that it is a difficult thing to do. This message is not going to be everything there is to say about forgiveness, but I think there's a lot that is in here that we want to look at, that we want to think about. So this is our second in our three-week little series on this, this short book of Philemon. And I hope you open to it and follow along in, in the Bible. If you want to use the Pew Bible, page 1000, you can look there. And last week we introduced this and we talked about three main characters that we need to understand for this letter to make sense. And the first is the author, who is Paul. He's an apostle of Jesus. And at this point, he is currently a prisoner and he is in the city of Rome. That's where he is imprisoned at this point. We'll see this in the text. Uh, So he is the author and he is writing to Philemon. And Philemon is a Christian And we can tell he seemed well-to-do. The church met in his home in Colossae, and he owned at least one uh, slave that that we know about. And Colossae is about a 1,000 miles away from Rome, over in Asia Minor, what's now uh, Turkey. And so Philemon is the recipient of this letter. And the third main character that is important is Onesimus. And Onesimus was Philemon's Uh, had been his slave. He was a runaway slave, and he had uh, ran away from uh, Philemon, probably stolen uh, from him when he left, because you would, you know, do that so you had provisions as you're on the run. Probably uh, tried to get as far away as he could. He might have known about Paul. We don't know if he sought out Paul or if uh, in God's divine providence, what seemed like an accident, they came into each, ran into each other. Uh, But Onesimus finds Paul, and is saved. He was not a Christian originally when he ran away, uh, but we're going to see in the text that he is converted. He becomes a Christian through Paul in, uh, in Rome there. And so at this point, Paul writes a few letters, the, the, what we call the book of Colossians, or the letter of Colossians, and he sends that uh, back to Colossae along with this letter of Philemon, and they're carried back by a man named Tychicus, and Onesimus that carries these two letters back to this, this house church that meets in uh, Philemon's house to be, to be read. And so you think of this, what a, uh, there would be a lot of drama in the first reading of this letter because they would arrive back there and this was likely the first time that uh, Philemon would have seen Onesimus in, in quite a while. And good chance he had been looking for him, trying to find, you know, his, uh, his slave here that had ran away. And he had, I think, no idea until this time that um, uh, Philemon, or that Onesimus, excuse me, had um, become a Christian last he knew uh, that he was uh, still without Christ. And all of a sudden, he and Tychicus kind of show up, you know, at, at the church. And think of what this would be be like. And they have uh, Colossians and Philemon. And uh, what would be the reaction? Uh, immediately, hey, I've been looking for you. And, you know, seize him. Because if you were a runaway slave in those days, uh, you know, you would be, you'd be hunted, you would be sought out. And there were a lot of severe punishments that could happen to you for being a runaway slave. They took this pretty seriously. And it was pretty much in the power of uh, the master to do whatever they wanted to. I mean, they held life or death over you. 
You know, if they wanted to kill you uh, for this and to teach a lesson to the other, you know, slaves that you don't do this, they could do that. There's one account in the ancient world um, that there was a, a slave that was caught that ran away and his master threw him into a pool of man-eating fish uh, to <laughs> teach him and the other slaves a lesson. I think that was uh, probably less common. I think that was a rare thing to do. Uh, but you probably, I mean, as Onesimus is coming back, you know, he doesn't know. You know, is he going to lose his life over this? Is he going to be severely beaten? That would be very common. One of the common things that they did uh, to a runaway slave if they were caught is they would uh, take a branding iron and they would brand the letter F, uh, which stood for fugitivus, which was Latin for fugitive, and they would brand it on their forehead. Uh, and that would be you know, your, your punishment, and it was a warning to others that, that you don't do this, you don't run away. What we are going to do, for this message at least, we are going to, uh, obviously this deals with the issue of slavery, and we're going to see some things you know, as we read this passage uh, that are give us some insights into slavery in that world. We've said it's a little bit different than slavery in America. There are some differences. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of questions that come to our minds. Like, what does the Bible actually say about slavery? Is this okay with it? Is it condemning it? Why doesn't Paul say other things? Why doesn't he say more? And we will deal with some more of that next week. So I hope you come back or can watch it one way or another. But for now, let's kind of take those questions and we're going to kind of shelve them. And we need to realize that in the ancient world, I mean, slavery was everywhere. And almost everyone, even if you weren't a slave, it's been said that almost everyone lived in varying degrees of unfreedom. That we shouldn't think of it like today where we just have um, unlimited freedom. Even if you weren't a slave, it's, you had varying degrees of how you're being subject to others. But the slaves yeah, were owned at the disposal of their, uh, their masters. Um, and like I said, we'll deal with it more. But maybe for now, to put us in kind of the mindset of that audience, uh, think of it in a sense like there was a contractor that, that you paid for already in advance, you invested funds in, and this contractor broke the contract uh, didn't do the work, stole from you, and then just took off. To them, at least, uh, that's somewhat what the situation is like. That's what, how they would have felt it is like. I'm not saying that it is exactly what it's like, but that kind of gets us closer to how uh, people in the Roman Empire, they would have felt this is like. That uh, Onesimus, by, by running away, had um, wronged uh, Philemon and had robbed him and um, had taken off and was wrong in this way. Primary things we're going to be looking at are the ideas of forgiveness and reconciliation. We talked a lot about reconciliation last week. We're going to talk a lot about forgiveness here. I think there's um, other things that we can see in this passage. I mean, you can uh, use this as a study of persuasion noticing how Paul writes to Philemon to persuade him to do the right thing. I believe not to, not to manipulate, that's different, uh, but the art of godly persuasion. But I think that's secondary. I think the main point, the big idea that we're going to be seeing is that, that Paul wants Philemon to forgive and to forgive voluntarily from the heart, remembering how he was forgiven. So as we, uh, as we read some of this again, we'll read um, the, the beginning from, from last week, and then we'll work through this central section. Again, we need to picture this being read for the first time uh, with, at the church in Colossae with um, Philemon there, wondering, hey, my runaway slave just came back, and should I you know, have, grab him? Do we do this? Do we start the beatings now? What, what's going on? Different impulses. And, uh, or is this, uh, and maybe Tychicus having to say, wait, 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 you know, hold it there. We got these letters. Maybe let's read you the book of, the letter of Colossians that we call the letter of Colossians first. And then there's another one here from Paul specifically about Onesimus here to you, Philemon. So hold on, let us read these. And 
then you make your decision and see what you're going to do. But there would be all kinds of things, you know, swarming around in, in the emotions and uh, what to do. So let's, um, if you have your uh, Bible, let's read here what we have last time. And then we'll move on to uh, today's section. So the book of Philemon. Uh, so last time, starting with verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our br- a beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So it's written to Philemon, but it's kind of an open letter, and I think it's being read while the, the, the rest of the, the church is there meeting in uh, Philemon's house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So that's what we did last time. We're going to work through 8 through verse 20 this week. So we'll kind of work through that and talk about it. But in this first section, 8 through 14, I want to draw out uh, the main point here that uh, Paul, what he wants to do, he wants to persuade Philemon to do the right thing voluntarily. He wants to persuade him to do the right thing, but he wants him to do it voluntarily and to do it uh, from the heart. Um, Let me read this uh, section and then we'll, we'll work through it bit by bit. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So as we, we look at this, we see in verse uh, 8 and 9, it says that he, he's, he is trying to persuade Philemon to do the right thing, but he does want him to do it voluntarily. He is not trying to, to force him to do this. He wants it to be from his heart. He says, accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, He realizes, you know, he could use his apostolic authority. I am the apostle Paul, and I command you to do this. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, this is what you need to do. This is the right thing to do. And in a sense, that would have been fine. He would have the right to do this. There are certain things that we do need to do. And I think he is trying to get him to do the right thing. He is not saying here that, you know, it's, it's a judgment call. You know, you make your own truth. You decide what you want to do. He's it says uh, it is what is required, but at the same time, he wants him to do the right thing from the heart. He wants him to do it, uh, to do it voluntarily. And that's why he says in verse 9, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. He's appealing. It's the, the art of persuasion here. To get him to, uh, to do this, what is right and, and good, out of love, rather just, oh, I have to do this. I think there's something that we can think about here when we think about just the things that we are commanded to do. And there are things that we, are, we ought to do. We are supposed to do. It would be sin not to do them. But we want to also think of what is our motive for doing these things. Now, many things, it is, it is better to do them simply because we ought to do them and we should uh, than to sin or disobey. But the best way to do this is we also want to do it from the heart. We recognize we want to please our Lord. We also recognize that what God tells us is best. It is, it is best for us. It is best for others. This is good. And even if we don't understand it, we're going we're gonna to trust the Lord and we're going to follow him. So whether it's just, you know, our giving and tithing, 
that we're doing it, not just, oh, compulsion, I got to do this and write the check. Here you go, go online. But we're, instead, if we can do it from the heart, out of, out of joy, out of giving, and forgiving, we think about that. You know, when it's just, oh, I have to do this, I don't want to do it. But if we can let God work on our hearts so we can do what we need to do and do it coming from the heart. Notice here, Paul describes himself. He says, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. He's describing who he is. But think of the effect that this would have on Philemon as he reads this. You know, there was a time in our nation's history where when our, our, the United States was very, very young, I mean, before we had our first president, before we had a constitution, where this nation almost fell apart right from the beginning and was saved by a, gla- a pair of eyeglasses. And this is actually quite a uh, kind of a stunning story. Um, but after the Revolutionary War, you know, which lasts like you know, eight years, and George Washington is the leader, and he's you know, highly renowned, and everyone looked up to him. He was kind of uh, you know, a little bit you know, distant from the common troops just because he, he needed to be for the prestige of this. But after the war was won, you think, okay, uh, everything's good and great now, but they had a lot of problems. And one is they had all these soldiers and officers that had been basically going without pay for a long time. And the, uh, the nation didn't have the money to pay them. They were trying to get money from the states, and the states were uh, doing a very poor job of uh, ponying up to you know, give these soldiers you know, what was promised to them and what was due to them. It was taking a long time, and it was a frustrating experience you know, for uh, these soldiers that had uh, you know, been away from their home and had been uh, doing this for a long time. And things could have gone really differently for our, our country. You know, historians have noted that most of the time when there's, you know, a, a revolution, uh, they might have these great ideals at the beginning, but it ends in tyranny and bloodshed, and the victors end up turning on each other later on, and you see that in other countries after their revolutions. And so as the war is over, these former soldiers are still owed payment for their, their service, and out of frustration, uh, they were about to take the matter into their own hands and to use uh, military force to intervene on the civil government and force them uh, to, to pay them. And as this was coming to a head, uh, George Washington, who had been the, the general, um, to try and keep this from happening, from being this uh, kind of this insurrection, he called a meeting with the agitated troops and their officers. This happened on March 15. 1873, one historian, um, uh, James uh, Flexner, stated this was probably the most important single gathering ever held in the United States. And sometimes we can think about because of the consequences of what happened. Those that were in attendance, they were not happy to see Washington. They were frustrated with him as well. They were down on his his, uh, leadership, uh, even though he had brought them through the, the war. Washington met with them, he echoed their concerns, and he tried to uh, argue and tell them that the government, despite their slowness, that they would, in the end, act justly. And it's recorded that Washington, he came to the end of his prepared uh, speech, his remarks, and the audience, they, they did not seem to buy it. They did not seem moved at all. And he remembered that he had brought with him a, a letter from a congressman, and he thought, well, I I haven't gotten my effect here. They're still mad. They're still raging. I haven't made a difference. And he brought out this letter that he was going to read. And um, reading here from a a biography on George Washington by Flexner, it says, uh, he remembered he brought with him a reassuring letter from a congressman. He would read it. He pulled the paper from his pocket, and then something seemed to go wrong. The general seemed confused. He stared at the paper helplessly. The officers leaned forward, their hearts contracting with anxiety. Washington pulled from his pocket something only his intimates had seen him wear, a pair of eyeglasses. Gentlemen, he said, you will permit me to put on my spectacles. 
for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. This homely act, this simple statement, did what all of Washington's arguments had failed to do. The hardened soldiers wept. And it wasn't the words that he said, the different arguments, but when he pulled out this, this unplanned thing, pulled out these glasses that they didn't see him wear and these comments, and they realized that, you know, through this time, it had taken a toll on him, that he had, as I said, gone gray and nearly blind in the service of his country. You know, this is what it uh, softened their hearts and caused them to back down, in a sense, you know, save the, the, the foundation of our, of our country. And I think something like this is probably what's going on with Philemon as he hears Paul talk here. And say, so he realize, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. And I think in Philemon's heart, whatever anxiety, whatever frustration, whatever maybe anger he had, he sort of realized, this is Paul talking to me. Think of all he sacrificed. Think of all the beatings that he has had for the sake of Christ. Think of all that he has gone through. And now he's in prison. He's risked his life. He's, he's given everything for the sake of the gospel. And Philemon realizing because of this that, that Philemon is saved. You know, when we try to persuade other people, it's not ultimately the words that are said. You can have the great logical argument. You can have the greatest... Um, you know, a, you know, eloquent prose and, and statements that you could make. Okay, and sometimes it can be important having the right things to say. It's not just the, the passion in which you say it, although that is something, but there's the, the character of the individual that makes the difference. And Paul was going to have this impact on Philemon because he had lived the life. He had sacrificed. He had put the glory of God First, at great cost to himself. He goes on and he says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So again, he says he's appealing. He's, he's trying to convince him, to persuade him. And then he calls Onesimus his child, and that he became his father. So Paul is not his, his literal father, uh, he's not his, his legal father or his uh, biological father. But who he's referring to is he's, he's his spiritual father. That Onesimus was saved, saved by Christ, not by Paul. You know, people don't, it's Christ who saves. Uh, but he was saved by Christ through Paul during Paul's time in prison. And again, we don't know how Onesimus got in contact with him, but he was, was saved by Paul through this. And so, Paul is now, now telling Philemon, you know, he, you know, Philemon, I, I've let you know I love you and I care about you and I've seen the great things that God is doing. And now I'm telling you Onesimus too, he's been saved. And you see, I, I love him too. I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for his life. And he has become a Christian announcing this. And this is going to mean that he has this, this new identity, that he has, he has forgiveness that you are a one together in the body of Christ. And it says in verse 11, Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. This is a little play on words, because Onesimus, his name, literally means useful. It was a pretty common slave name. You name your slave useful. And I don't know how useful he really was. Uh, you know, he, he ran away here. And Paul is saying there's been this change, okay? And really, ultimately, he was not of real use to you, uh, whether he was a, a good servant or he was a poor servant. But now think of what he is. He has really become uh, living up to his name. He, is, he has been useful for the things that really count. And Paul is saying he's become useful to me. In my time in prison, he's, he's served with me. He's helped me. Uh, personally, I think help Paul in the ministry in extending the gospel to other people. And Philemon, you're a Christian too. You care about these things. You care about the spread of the gospel. And this means that uh, this one, he, that who had just been a servant to you, now he is able to, to serve the Lord and the mission that God gives us all in a truly useful and good way. 
So there's this change in Onesimus, you know, this runaway. He's, he's saved. And we're going to see, he, now he has, he has a new status. We're going to see there's a change in his character. And I think if he had been, you know, somebody that, you know, hadn't been that useful, and maybe that's true, maybe he had been, uh, you know, not the best, but now he's become really useful to, to Paul. Uh, I think there's a change in his mindset. He has a new purpose in life, a new purpose, you know, in living. And Paul is pointing to this. He goes on in verse 12, and he says, I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very heart. Now, when he says he's sending him back, Paul was sending Onesimus back, but I, I think we shouldn't take that to mean that he was sending Onesimus back unwillingly. I think it can also mean that Onesimus was also going back uh, willingly, feeling that he needed to reconcile. He needed to uh, just not be on the run. He needed to uh, do what would lead to, to better things between him and Philemon as well. You know, in Deuteronomy, under the Old Testament law, actually, under the Old Testament law, Hebrews were told not to return runaway slaves to their masters. That's in Deuteronomy 23, 15 through, 7, 15 through 16. Um, although it's hard to know exactly how, this would, how much this would apply in this situation, it seems to be a different context. And I think Paul here, he was seeking for their reconciliation, at least for their reconciliation, and maybe for even more. But we also see in this verse, he really cared for Onesimus. Paul really did. He said it's sending his very heart. And this is the second time this word heart has been used. He, uh, his, uh, his, his, his emotion, his, the word refers to you know, his, his innards, sending him back to him. Paul deeply cared for him. And he goes on to verse 13, he says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment in the gospel. So Paul, if he was just thinking about himself, his self-interest, he would have wanted to keep him because Onesimus was being really helpful to him. He was a great partner in ministry and Paul is confined. At this time, he's probably in prison. It's probably some kind of uh, house arrest, you know, but he's chained to a guard who doesn't have his freedom and to have you know, people around that can help and that can be sent to do different things, really super helpful. Paul would have been very glad to have him stay. But he sent him back because there were other purposes that he thought were more important. Again, this wasn't just selfish interest for Paul, but it was for the purposes of Christ's kingdom. And so why did he send them back? And it says in verse 14, But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but by your own accord. So again, he wants it to be voluntary. He wants it to be from the heart. Uh, but you could tell Paul is saying, I'd really like to have him with me. I'd really like to have you. And this is kind of a hint at what is, what is Paul going to be asking for here? And I say at the very least, he wants it to be reconciliation and forgiveness. But I think we have a, at least a hint here that Paul is saying, it'd be really great if you could send him back because he's really useful. It's really great to have him here. I think one application that we can take from this so far, we think of ourselves and we think of forgiveness and things we need to do, that we need to forgive voluntarily from the heart. You know, we've had times with our kids where they get in a fight and you make them forgive each other and they say the words and they're grudgingly and they're looking at the ground, I forgive you. And, and sometimes it's good to have them go through the motions. I can tell looking at the audience. There's some body language going on with some of the kids here. Uh, <laughs> And we do it because mom and dad are making me do that. But we want to grow to be people that we're able to do that from our heart. You know, and that's when it's going to be the true type of forgiveness that's really going to allow for reconciliation. Because when it's from our heart, then we can also release them from the, uh, from the penalty of anger that we store up in our own hearts against other people. Again, this is not easy, but this is something God wants us to work towards to do. So that was our first point. We're going to look at verses 15 and 16. And in this section, we'll summarize it and say, Paul here wants to persuade Philemon to treat Onesimus as a brother in Christ. We see Onesimus, he's been saved. He's now a Christian. He's now a brother in Christ. Let me read 15 through 16. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, 
as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Okay, so still he's, he's persuading, trying to get him to do this, and to treat Onesimus with the new status that he has. If he is a Christian, that means that he is now a brother to Philemon in the Lord. That they have a different relationship that is even greater than their old master-servant relationship. That now they are their brothers in Christ. And he says in verse 15, this was uh, perhaps um, why he has parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever. God was working his purposes. You know, through all the things that happened, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, things that seem unfortunate, uh, things that don't make sense, God is always working his purposes. God works all things together for the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose. You know, even some of the, the toughest things, uh, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis at the end, all the terrible things that happened to Joseph, you know, at the very end, Genesis fifty twenty, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know, God behind the scenes is working through all circumstances for his good purposes. Now, Paul, he throws in the word perhaps, and I think that's helpful for us also to remember because one thing we can know for sure is that God is working his purposes. What we don't also always know is exactly how God is doing that and his reasons for that, uh, the specifics of that. And so sometimes we can guess or think, I think God is doing this, and maybe this bad thing happened or I lost my job or this happened or I uh, got this illness, and God is working this. Maybe we know that, but sometimes we don't know for sure. And so unless, you know, God has told us somehow specifically, it's good to have some humility and to think, well, perhaps this is the case. But we do know that God is working his purposes, you know, but we don't know the total map. We don't know exactly how that is going to work itself out. But we see here, you know, that part of what happened here is Onesimus, he is saved. And he is saved now forever. And so, Paul is trying to get Philemon to think, okay, he ran away, he had all this trouble and all of this, but now you have someone that knows the Lord. He is forgiven of his sins. He is a worshiper of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to be with you in, in, in heaven. And isn't that worth it? All these things to happen if, if somebody could know the Lord and be saved through this. Think about that for our lives, too, when there's things that happen. If God can use that to bring somebody to saving faith, to rescue somebody from, from hell forever, isn't it worth it? If that's part of what God is doing, even through the troubles and hardships that we go through. In verse 16, he says, you can have him back forever. What does this mean? He's going to be my servant forever. He's going to be with me. Well, I think it also could mean uh, even more that he's going to be with you, you know, forever you know, in heaven, in the, in the Lord. That's really forever not just the end of this life. That's not really, you know, forever, forever. But he says, have forever, verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, one thing I noticed, I was reading through this, and <clears throat> I noticed in my Bible, it said, verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, and he uses that phrase, okay, a bondservant, what is this? And I remember thinking, I thought it said slave here. And there are different translations where it, um, you, maybe you have a different translation and it, it uses the word slave there. I say, well, what's the reason for that? Why does it say this? And then I remembered, I had an older version of the uh, English Standard Bible. That's what I'm using here. This is a different one. I used to have a brown one that maybe you remember for a long time. And I kind of switched, well, this one's a little bit bigger font, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> that's part of it. But also I realized uh, they had made sometimes some little subtle changes uh, that they have, you know, they just edit it from time to time and, um, you know, to update and, you know, fine tune things a little bit. So I looked at my old one and it had the word slave there. I thought, well, I don't know how I feel about that. Does this, is it softening it too much? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And... Um, it does have in the footnotes, you know, that it's, um, you know, or, or a slave. But then, 
it also referred me to the, um, to the introduction and the preface to the translation. If you have the, um, the Pew Bible in front of you, take that and turn to the introduction. It's page 7 and 8, Roman numerals VII, okay? Because it talks about this, why they decided to do this. And I think this is actually pretty helpful. In one paragraph it says, Third, a particular difficulty is presented when words in biblical Hebrew and Greek refer to ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to those in the modern world. Such is the case of the translations of Ibed, Hebrew, and Dulas, Greek, terms which are often rendered slave. These terms, however, actually cover a range of relationships that requires a range of renderings, slave, bondservant, or servant, depending on the context. Remember, this is the preface. This is not the actual Bible, but this is the translators kind of telling us how they made some of their decisions. You know, because this was originally written in, in Greek, and they have to figure out what's the best English word to convey the same meaning. But then it goes on and says, further, <clears throat> the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery, particularly in 19th century America. For this reason, the ESV translation of the words Eved and Dulas has been undertaken with particular attention to their meanings in each specific context. Thus, in Old Testament times, one might enter slavery either voluntarily, example, to escape poverty or to pay off a debt, or involuntarily, example, by birth or being captured in battle or by judicial sentence. Protection for all in servitude in ancient Israel was provided by the Mosaic law, including specific provisions for release from slavery. In New Testament times, a doulos is often best described as a bond servant. That is, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve his master for seven years, except for those in Caesar's household in Rome who were contracted for 14 years. When the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by their master and officially declared a free man. And then it goes on to kind of explain that a little bit. But I thought it was, that was helpful. And as I said, we'll talk more about slavery and these issues and what does Paul say and what is he, what is he really asking for this letter and should he have said more? Uh, but it reminds us that uh, slavery in those days was, it's, it's not an exact one-to-one with uh, slavery in the early uh, times in America. And that there were times where it was almost more like a, a contract. Um, now, it doesn't seem like it was automatically always after seven years they were set free, but oftentimes they could expect to be set free uh, at a certain amount of time. So there are, there are differences, but that's why the newer ESV and some other translations use this phrase bondservant to help us realize it's not an exact one-to-one with what we might automatically think about. But he's saying whatever view this was as far as, you know, type of slavery, and he still would have been unfree during this time, but he's trying to get Philemon to realize now he's a Christian and he's coming back to you with a different relationship and he is now a brother in Christ. And Paul is saying, hey, spiritually, you know, I let both of you to the Lord. I'm not the one that saved you. God saved you. But, you know, I'm kind of your, your spiritual father. And guess what? You guys are spiritual brothers in Christ now. And for all of us, no matter how you were saved by Christ or who led you to the Lord, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have a different, a new relationship. And there's so much division in the world today things that people want us to be divided over race and class and gender and all this, but our unity that we have in the Lord, being brothers and sisters in Christ, that is above and beyond all of that. The unity, what brings us together as Christians, is greater than anything that divides us or sets us up against each other. It should be the antidote for any type of division that we have one from another. They have their new relationship Remember, Paul sent this letter back also with the, the book of Colossians. And I think, I think, I don't know for sure, I think they probably would have read Colossians first. Okay, let's read this letter to the whole church. But also, there's going to be some things in there that Philemon's going to hear 
that give him the theology that is going to make an impact for this letter. And one part of that is in Colossians um, chapter 3, 9 through 11. In this section, it, says, it talks about the new identity in Christ. And it talks about this from the beginning of the chapter. And then in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then get this especially, verse 11. Here, in Christ, in your new identity, here, in the church, here, there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, different, different uh, ethnicities, or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. There's not this disunity. And man, that's what the world right now, they're, they're preaching disunity. They're telling you to find your identity in anything that makes you, gives disunity from other people. But as Christians, it is all about the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. It is above and beyond anything that separates us. This new relationship that we have, especially within the church, that we should be a model for the world of, of unity because we have a unity that the world does not have. This new relationship in Christ, and we're not divided by race or by status or any of these different things. Notice that Paul also says, going back to uh, no longer as a, a bondservant, but as a beloved brother, especially to me, and much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Okay, we say, what does that mean? He says, in the flesh and in the Lord. You know, if he's um, not a, a slave, uh, okay, we get that, that spiritually he's not a, he's not a slave. He's, he's set free in Christ spiritually. But he also mentions in the flesh. Again, we'll talk about this more next week, but it makes you wonder, what is Paul hinting at here? What is he implying, maybe, as far as what he really wants Philemon to do? Maybe he's not coming out right and saying it yet, but be thinking about that. Is he suggesting to Philemon that, you know, spiritually he's not a slave? And so, uh, Philemon, let's have you connect the dots. Maybe make that true, not just in the Lord, but, but in real life as well. Application for all of us, forgive because of our new identity and union in Christ. Now, I think even if somebody is not a Christian, we want to, we're called to seek forgiveness and to do that, but especially with someone else that is a fellow Christian. We have a new identity, and we're brothers and sisters with each other, and we're in Christ together, and that should want us to reconcile and to forgive them. And then finally, last part of this, 17 through 20, Paul wants to persuade Philemon to receive Onesimus as if he were receiving Paul. So let me read to you there. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Verse 17, he says, if you consider me your partner, so it's kind of if-then, but he knows that Philemon considers his partner. They've, they've talked about this. They're one in this purpose. So, so if this is true, and since this is true, this, now comes the ask, what he's asking him to do, you know, at least this for Onesimus. Receive him as you would receive me, okay? So you're, you're not going to haul him away to beat him. You're not going to imprison him. You're not going to brand a... F on his forehead, at the very least. You know, how you treat him the way you would retreat me. Think of the union that we have in Christ, this partnership. You know, their relationship, it, it's almost like a, like a triangle. You have Paul, and then you have Onesimus, and then you, you have Philemon. They're both Christians. He loves them. But he's saying that now they need to complete this triangle. They need to reconcile. And in a way, it's not even just a triangle. It's a pyramid because the Lord is at the top of all of this. 
So welcome him, and at least don't punish him. Punish him. And then verse 18, if he has wronged you at all, or if he owes you anything, because he might have stolen from him. There's also the you know, labor and loss that he had when Philemon or Onesimus ran away. If he owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul is saying, I'll pay for it. I'll take care of it. I'll find a way to take care of this. I will, I will repay this. You have my word. I've even, I'm writing this part of my own. You know, it's like I'm signing this. You, you have my guarantee on this. Christians, this is a picture of what Christ did for you and I. You know, the salvation that we have is because Jesus said, charge that to my account. If we have wronged God, if we have sinned against him in any way, Jesus said, put that on my bill. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to pay that. And that is why Jesus went to the cross. And that is why he hung there. That's how salvation works. And that's why forgiveness and reconciliation for us with God is a possibility and the motive for everything else. This is called salvation by imputation, that our sins were credited to Jesus' account and he paid for them on the cross. Last week we... um, looked at 2 Corinthians 5, another letter Paul had written. It talks about reconciliation. It talks in the beginning about being a new creation. But this week I want to draw your attention to verse 21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This means that God the Father made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He was innocent. That when Jesus went to the cross... He became guilty of our sins. Our sins were credited to his account. It was reckoned in the accounting system in the eyes of God as if Jesus had committed those sins. And Jesus is saying to you, Christian, he's he's saying, uh, put that on my tab. Put that on my account. You think I can't come before the Lord right now because I've sinned. I've, 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 I've hated my heart. Jesus has said, charge that to my account. You say, well, I have, uh, you know, I have bitterness. Charge that to my account. I've had impure language come out of my mouth. Jesus said, charge that, put that on my account. So I've committed immorality in my heart. Jesus said, charge that to my account. You say, I've committed immorality in real life. Jesus said, charge that to my account. And no matter what sin that you have done, Jesus had that charge to his account for your salvation. That Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid it all. And when you trust Christ as your Savior, you are saved because of that imputation that is taken, that your sins are put on his account. And he's already done it. He's paid for them on the cross. And not just that, but there's another imputation that goes the other way. His perfect righteousness is credited to your count. So all your debts of your sin that you owe, you owe a a debt that you could never pay, were charged to Jesus. And his perfect righteousness is is credited to you. It's put in your your spiritual bank account. This is how we're saved, not by our good works, but Jesus as our substitute, paying the price for us in our place. What an awesome picture of this. Him who knew no sin, it made him to be sin so that we could become the righteous of God. The swap that goes both ways. And I hope you believe that. You recognize this this offer that Jesus has to, to take your sin and to have those paid for on the cross and to give you the gift of his righteousness. It's not this automatic thing. It happens for those that trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. But as he says in this verse, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And you do this when you realize that you are a sinner and that is a bad thing and that you come to Christ as the one to pay the price, who has paid the price for your sin. And then he says, Say nothing of your owing me, even yourself. Hey, just a reminder. You know, so you are saved. And 
God used me to bring you to this. If you want to do me a favor for this, forgive Onesimus. You've refreshed my heart before. Refresh my heart again in this. We need to forgive. And when you forgive, you're being who you are in Christ. And we forgive because Christ paid the price to forgive you. Think of what he did for you. And we think of that, it motivates us. Again, in Colossians, it goes on and says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And the reason that we can forgive from the heart is because Jesus paid it all for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the forgiveness that you have given to us and that Jesus Christ truly has paid it all. That if our sins have been credited to his account and that for everyone, the offer is available to everyone and to everyone that comes and trusts the Lord as Savior. They can know that their sins have been paid for because it has been charged to Jesus' account. And he died for us. He died to take care of our sins, paying the price that we could not pay and giving us the gift of his righteousness. Lord, we have new identity in you. And as we realize that our brothers and sisters in Christ have new identity too, let all these things be motives for us to do the hard thing and to forgive the way that you have forgiven us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.